This is an ABC podcast. You can sense it. Some people say you can even smell it, but it's hard to define and even harder to change. Workplace culture. Many of us have experienced a bad one, toxic even, and it is hard to fix. In fact, sometimes the only answer is to leave. Didier Elzinger is CEO of Australia's newest unicorn startup, CultureAmp, which was recently valued at over a billion dollars. What Didier offers is the tools to measure culture. The theory goes if you can measure it, then you can improve it. But how does it work? I headed to Culture Amp's offices in Richmond to find out. Let's start at the beginning. What do we mean by this word culture, which is bandied around a lot in workplaces? The kind of definition, if you will, that I like is culture is the way things are done around here. So it's a sort of set of norms that leads and changes the behaviour of people in an organisation. And why are you so obsessed with it? I'm obsessed with it for a lot of reasons. I think and we can go down this rabbit hole of my history and, and what I did before I worked in film before. But a lot of what I was focused on was how did we bring people together to do what we needed to do? So, you know, we're working on a Hollywood feature film. We would go from nothing to 100 people in a very short period of time and we would work for a year on Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something. And I was really passionate about how do you do that well? How do you do that in a way that allows you to do more with the people that you have? And so that's kind of where it started. And then the more I dived into it, the more I got interested in it, the, the more I just sort of kept realizing culture is the biggest level we have. You know, when we talk about what makes a successful company, it used to be you had to be financially successful. But to be financially successful, you have to be customer-centric, and to be customer-centric, you have to put culture first. Culture first. Hang on. Mm -hmm. Let's take a moment here because it sounds easy to say, but it's somewhat controversial, isn't it? Because a lot of people are saying, put the customer first. So what do you say to that? I mean, this has been debated for years. So I think what is true is that you need to understand who your customer is and how you're creating value for them. Like if you don't have a solid understanding of the, the change you're trying to create in the world, the best culture is not going to work because it's got nothing to work against. It's not producing any output. It's not creating anything of meaning or value. But in terms of how, that's the culture. So back in the 70s, uh, there was a whole bunch of work done called the service profit chain model. And they basically just did a nice little thing to show you that if you want to create an experience for a customer, you have to start by creating an experience for your people. If your people are unhappy, how are they meant to make the, the customer happy? It just doesn't work. You use data to quantify culture, which is very challenging because I can see culture being quite ephemeral. You can feel it. But how do you measure it, Didier? At its core there's a lot of analogy from brand. So brand is ephemeral too, but we use data very effectively to sit down and say, what is the experience that our customers or potential customers are having? And does that resonate with the brand that we want? And so what we think about is the same thing, but internally for culture. So what is the experience that you need your people to be having? And where is it occurring and where is it not? And what do you need to do to improve it? And so it's, it's about bringing data to bear, but it's not about necessarily just saying, here's a number. I mean, culture is valuable, but very hard to value. And so can you give me an example of uh, the an indicator of an experience that would show you that there was good culture happening in an organisation? 
one of the core ideas that people are talking about a lot, there's actually people saying, we don't want to talk about diversity and we don't even want to talk about inclusion. We want to talk about belonging. So what does it mean to be an organization that people both want to, but also feel like they can belong to? And so what we're finding is that that feeling of belonging actually correlates, so connects very well and predicts the experience they're having in the organization. So people are more likely to stay, they're more likely to put in more discretionary effort, they're more likely to be successful when they feel that they can belong to the organization they're working for. Let's go one layer down then into the detail of how do you collect this data? Mm. Um, Can you explain how it works? Yeah, so at a high level, what we help people do is much more easily collect data anywhere in the employee lifecycle. And we do that through surveys, 360s, through anywhere where we're engaging an employee and providing feedback, either about the organization or about somebody else in the organization or their manager or whatever it might be. We then draw that data together and we use that data to help drive insight into what they need to focus on, what they can change. And then most importantly, we use that insight to drive positive behavior change. So we actually support people in going from where they are to where they need to be. And what we're drawing upon is the research into how do you measure all this stuff? Like if you want to know whether people belong, what's the right way to ask that question? If you want to know how what people think of their managers, what are the sorts of questions that will elicit not only use, uh, interesting data, but useful data that you can then tie to things that will make it better? And I think what we're able to do in a way that hasn't really been done before is actually benchmark in a deeper, richer way and a more dynamic way. So it's not just the top quartile board benchmark is blah, but it's like, you know, who are the relevant ones for me to compare myself to? Can I measure the experience of different parts of my organization against different parts of other organizations? Have you got a story about where uh, you've come in and really made a meaningful difference to the culture at an organization? Many. Some of them, or many of them, are also ones that we can't really share publicly because they're often, you know, I think at the heart of great cultures are not perfect. We joke that a a perfect culture is a cult. (laughs) You know, a, a strong culture is one that is honest and that holds up a mirror and is accountable for what it sees. And it goes, we're doing really great here, but we have challenges here. Let's be honest about it and let's Uh, admit it and let's focus on it, let's improve it. But I can think of a company um, here in Australia, actually, which was a multi-hundred person company, uh, very successful. When we started working with them, their engagement, which is a way of sort of measuring how people were connected to the organization, was sitting in the, I think it was in the low 50s. So what that meant was that only one in two people were really connected to the org. Within 18 months, we were able to get that up to almost 80%. It was 78%, I think. I mean, in this particular circumstance, it's different in every circumstance. In this particular circumstance, it it often starts with commitment from senior leadership. So is the senior leadership, first of all, admitting that there is something that could be better? And then secondly, committed to changing not only the org, but themselves to achieve that outcome. And in this situation, they did. And then what they did was they connected with large groups across the organization to sit down and say, okay, if this is what we want to change, how do we go about changing it? Because, you know, the survey, getting the data back from the survey is not the answer. It's often the start of a good conversation. And so in this situation, they use that data to go, all right, let's go talk about this. Let's go talk about this. And then those workshops and those focus groups led to the ideas. And then the platform was able to help them see what was working and, and what wasn't yet. You are obviously very focused on culture. And I'm wondering whether you ever worked in a place with a bad workplace culture. I worked for Hollywood. <laughs> so I spent 13 years in film, uh, ended up as the CEO at Rising Sun. 
And I'm eternally grateful to the founders of that company for founding that company with a sort of people first environment or what we would call culture first now. I learned a lot in that situation by striving to build a culture first company and coming up short at times. And that's on me. It's not on anyone else because I was running the company for half of it. And it reminded me just how hard it is (laughs) to do it well. And so I haven't had the fortune or misfortune to work in what I would call a toxic culture. I've worked in an industry which was notoriously difficult. So Hollywood and the film industry are some of the most amazing, most talented, wonderful human beings on the planet and some of the most dysfunctional business models you will ever find. And you get pushed well beyond your anyone's ability to cope. And so I learned a lot about mental well-being and stress and all of those things in the film industry. And in those moments when you're saying um, as a CEO you may have, you know, faltered in terms of helping the culture, how does having data help you correct those sorts of missteps? I think what it does is it shifts you from being kind of anecdotal to being data-informed. So, you know, you walk around and you go, oh, it feels like we have a problem. Well, do we? Like, what is the actual difference? And so, first of all, measuring it and having data allows you to quantify it. It allows you to do what we call the null hypothesis, which is oftentimes you go to a senior management team and say, we have a problem. They're like, okay, we need to do this. And they're like, we're not ready to do that or we don't think it's important enough. We're not going to do it. So what we usually teach people to do is you say, okay, here's where we're at. We can choose to do nothing. That is an acceptable choice. If we choose to do nothing, this is what the future is likely to be. So let's take our engineering, women in engineering. Based on the data that we now have, a third of the women that we have in engineering will have left within a year, hypothetical. Do you want that outcome? People are like, no. Okay, good. Here are the options you have to avoid that outcome. So data is really helpful at getting people to commit to change because you can actually help them start to see. And so what's likely to happen if you do nothing? If you don't like that future, you can change it. And then on the other side, data helps you keep yourself honest and accountable to, hey, we rolled out a new program. We've been training managers and leaders. We've been promoting women into senior roles. Has it made any difference? Because if it hasn't made any difference, you haven't achieved the outcome that you set out to achieve. Have you come across many data-phobic companies? (laughs) Uh, Not really data phobic. I think the bigger concern is we're all still learning and grappling with how to use data properly. And I think there's a data literacy that is still being developed. And it's easy to use data the wrong way or to draw conclusions that are not actually supported by the data. We might have data that says that We'll keep keep on the theme of poor women in engineering. Uh, And this is broadly true across the industry, unfortunately. But we have data that says that the women are twice as likely to leave as the men in your engineering team, and that could be true. What people will look at is they'll look at a report where a manager has five people. They have four men, one woman. So Mary and four men. And they'll say, Mary is more likely to leave than the four men. Depending on how many people you have in your org and depending on the data, that actually is potentially inaccurate. So statistically, 50 Marys is more likely to lead 200 of them. But in this particular team, no statistical evidence that she is more likely to leave than someone else. That's a tricky thing to get people to understand. And how is the culture at your organisation, Didier? Our first value is have the courage to be vulnerable. And what is really powerful to me is the way that people can show up 
and can bring a version of themselves that maybe they've never been able to or never been willing to bring into the workplace. And I can think of multiple situations of people that have come and told me how transformative it's been to them as an individual to be able to work at a company like Culture Amp that creates that environment. That's not without its cost. I think Culture Amp can be more emotionally exhausting than some places because of that very thing. And oftentimes there's a whole model in individual psychology where your strengths overplayed become your weaknesses. So vulnerability as a strength overplayed can become ruinous empathy if people are familiar with um, the radical candor model. And so these are things that we're constantly talking about, like you know, how, how do we have those conversations? How does that work? But I'm intensely proud of the, of the culture we have here and uh, of the way people show up for each other and the way that manifests in the community and for customers as a company that believes that culture is the biggest level we have and wants to invest in that culture as the thing that's going to make us successful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. No worries. Pleasure. was Didier Eldsinger, CEO of Culture Amp. You're listening to This Working Life on RN. I'm Lisa Leong. Colin Ellis is a culture change facilitator with the bruises to show for it. Welcome, Colin. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> you heard Didier's definition of culture. How do you define it? Uh, Didier is pretty much spot on. I'm not going to argue with him at all. It's the way things get done around here and it's the sum of everyone's attitudes, beliefs, behaviours, traditions and skills, Lisa. And have you experienced working in a toxic culture yourself? Well, I have, uh, Lisa. So for 30 years, you know, I was a permanent employee, like most people listening to the show. Um, you know, we didn't work in big Hollywood studios or for unicorn companies. And, and so, yes, I have experienced a toxic culture. And, it, you know, culture is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. But when you're in a toxic culture, Lisa, it's the thing that makes you want to stay in bed too. And is that why you decided to specialise in culture change, Colin? Yeah, it was because I think that we, you know, many organisations around the world, including the ones that I worked for, is we're very good at telling ourselves that culture change is hard because we don't want to make the tough decisions or we don't want to upskill people to help them be able to create vibrant cultures. It's too easy to say culture change is hard. Let's continue to walk past the poor behaviours we see on a daily basis. Do you agree with Didier that culture is measurable? Yeah, it is measurable in the sense that you can get a score that kind of captures the pulse of uh, an organisation, which is what Didier alluded to. But often it depends on the kind of environment in which you work and whether you feel either it's safe to answer the questions that you sent in the way that you would like or that you're engaged enough to even want to answer in the first place. So often the results are skewed by, by those two things. So what are some of the mistakes then you've seen around company culture and creating the right culture? Well, I think most organisations, Lisa, they, they want things fast and cheap. They want to send the execs to expensive off-sites, get them to define it. That doesn't work. They want to rebrand. They want to restructure. Those things don't work. They want to tolerate what I would call brilliant jerks. They want to go open plan. That's another good one that they like to do. And all of these things, when they're done in isolation, often have a negative impact on culture. When really the things that stick are where you kind of get staff to define the culture and get them to work together on the things that they need in order to collectively improve performance. And so they sort of sound like fads, don't they? The fads of how to fix your culture. 
Yeah, we love our fads. Lisa, a new one comes around every six years. The current fad is agile. Everybody's going agile. And again, it's not to say there isn't merit in, in being more agile and more flexibility, uh, more flexible, most, but most people forget that it's a mindset. It, it was Six Sigma six years before that. Prince two, six years before that. They come around every six years. But yeah, meaningful change is, really lies in the behaviours of people and the way that they work together. So it sounds like a lot of your work is about shining a light on some of these things. So what are some more of these uncomfortable truths around culture that you see? Often the most uncomfortable truth, um, Lisa, is the fact that there is someone within a particular culture, where it's poor, uh, that's behaving badly and no one's either got the guts to deal with it or isn't stepping up to the plate to deal with it that we're not challenging some of those kind of long-held beliefs and, and processes that are holding us back. Have you got a particular example of a badly behaving manager? I do. I, you know, this is one of my own experiences, uh, Lisa. Even as a, a senior executive in government myself, and I had a boss who just got angry at everything he didn't agree with and what I called sustained profanity. And he said, that's who I am. You have to accept it. And so we ended up losing all of our good people because they didn't want to work in that kind of environment. You know, I challenged the behavior. I did what I should do and followed a process to report it. And they decided that they would walk past it and said, ah, oh, that's who he is. You just have to deal with it. And so I ended up leaving myself. And so what's your answer to that? The, the answer to that is what you have to do is, is define the behavior that you expect of each other. And most organizations are great at doing this, but also there has to be accountability that you have to hold people to those agreements. If you don't, what happens is they just become words on a bit of paper. You know, we, we saw this with the, with the Royal Commission into banking. It's just some shocking behaviours. And yet, if you went and had a look at the corporate policies, it will be clearly stated in there that those behaviours aren't acceptable. But the fact is, people just didn't deal with them. Can I flip it a bit? Can a culture actually be too pleasant, Colin? Uh, it can. It absolutely can. Because what, you know, and, and the good thing about pleasant cultures is you've got lots of good humans who have lots of good intents. But productivity is low in those cultures. So you don't get the job done. We don't ever hit the uh, targets. You see this in big projects that fail all of the time. We're just too nice to have those challenging conversations. Now, what we don't want to do is have too much friction that it becomes destructive and we get lots of bad behaviours. But we want it, you know, I, one of the things I say is we do our best work on the edge of uncomfortable. Mm. We've got to feel like we're being just a little bit stretched in order to grow personally and work more effectively together as a team. Colin, your book is called Culture Fix. So let's put you on the spot here and ask you some questions about turning cultures around. It's hard to do. So in your experience, why do attempts to fix culture in the workplace often fail? Because we expect a quick fix, Lisa. That's that's the primary reason. What organisations do is they want to send people on the latest training course, they want to have a bit of a restructure instead of investing in a longer term plan for cultural evolution. Cultures don't change, they evolve. And so evolution takes time. So certainly in, in, in the work that I do, and when you look at all of the great culture case studies around the world, 
is all of these evolutions took usually between nine and 18 months to get to a position where the culture had evolved into something different. Like I said, most organizations, they want something to happen in the next three to six months and then they very quickly give up when they don't get what they expect or else they're looking for a specific number on the balance sheet to say, yes, our culture change was effective. Um, and it, it just doesn't work that way, but cultures can be changed. And so how do you or what sort of levers do you use to effectively affect that change then? You've got to put the culture in the, the hands of the people that own it. So you've got to get the staff together. You've got to get, you know, even for large organizations, which I work with, we get a representation from each department and get them to define the behaviors, to get them to create and craft a vision, to get those people to um, define how they're going to work together differently. Because obviously, if they were great, it would, everything would be fine. But they have to own it. Then the senior leaders have to role model what they expect of everybody else on a daily basis, you know, over a prolonged period of time, such that they set the example for other people to follow. And then everyone else has to take the responsibility for doing it. And, you know, some part of that, Lisa, is, is people going on training courses and learning new skills. Part of that is challenging some of the, the kind of bureaucracy that they find themselves stuck in. And part of that will be to lose some of the people that have held the culture back for so long. So can you give me a specific example of a company that has turned its culture around? ING is a, a Dutch bank and in 2013 they decided that they wanted to change their culture. Lisa, so they invested in emotional training, uh, emotional intelligence training. They invested in a culture program where the staff got to define the way that they wanted to work. And it, the, the whole process took between 18 months and two years and they ended up making kind of $2 billion more two years later, having built a culture that people not only wanted to work in that retained their good staff, but also challenged each other to be better. So they're a great case study of where when you actually address culture change in the right way, you can get the returns. What was the secret source there then, Colin? The secret source was was self-awareness and the, the COO at the time was a guy called Bart Schlappmann and, and what he said was giving people the awareness of who they are and also how their interactions needed to change was key, you know, and self-aware individuals are the foundations for great teams, Lisa. So that's about us knowing who we are. Also being able to kind of spot, manage, moderate our emotions, you know, and really bringing that out into a team environment where we, we, we create something where you can be the best version of yourself and where you're not able to be that, well, people will ask you if you're okay they've got your back. So they created this, you know, kind of this culture where, where people wanted each other to succeed and pushed each other to hit their targets. Colin, tell me about the power of subcultures within an organisation. So often the best place to start within any organisational kind of culture change initiative, whatever you want to call it, Lisa, is is by working on one small team. And I think for me as a as a, a permanent employee myself for over 30 years, is that's what I did. I, you know, I really focused on creating a great team, a team that got the job done, but a team that people looked at and said, you, you guys are doing some pretty off the wall stuff there. You know, we used to, we used to socialise, we used to celebrate success in different ways. We put reports out in different ways and you know our meetings were different than everybody else but we hit all of our targets 
And so, you know, my advice is always to people who want to change their culture, start with your own team. You know, really agree that set of behaviors, the way that you work together, have a vision yourself. Because great organizational cultures are made up of great subcultures. Now, we're very good at talking about these in a negative context. We call them silos. But what we forget is that silos can be really, really good things if they're effective and they pass on what they do well to other silos who can copy them. So what does the best look like then for you, Colin? The best for me is an organisation that has a vision, that real aspirational statement of the future. This is where we're going to go that excites people. They've got a set of values that provide emotional direction. So these are things that are lived. And then, uh, Lisa, there's, there's a set of behaviours that people agree to and uphold. They work together in ways that are innovative and, and that are different. And ultimately, they find ways of communicating, working together, interacting that elevates each other's performance, but also will kind of provide a gentle nudge when it's not where it needs to be. Those environments feel safe to work in. You want to get up, you want to get out of bed and go, you want to go and do your best and you know you'll be rewarded, not just financially, but also someone will actually come around and give you a pat on the back and say, you know what, you had a great day today. Well done. Brilliant. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Lisa. And that was Colin Ellis, author of Culture Fix. And to hear more stories about how you can create your best work life and do your best work, hit subscribe. Do me a favour, please. Rate and review. It helps others find us. And my favourite thing is to lie in bed late at night reading your reviews. Really. Thanks to producer Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.